Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. Have you heard of Kichi Manitouwaya? 125 years ago, his English name was on the lips of Canadians from coast to coast. He was known as Almighty Voice. Kichi Manitouwaya was a 22-year-old Cree. For most Canadians, he was a well-known Indian outlaw. In October of 1895, he was arrested by a Mountie for poaching a cow and was taken to the nearby jailhouse in Duck Lake in central Saskatchewan. He escaped that night. He was found a week later, but Almighty Voice shot the RCMP officer dead. What ensued was a 19-month manhunt by the mounted police. And at the end of May 1897, he was discovered and killed. It's a story that keeps resonating. It's a tragic story. Bill Wazer, one of Canada's most decorated historians, is my guest today. His most recent book is In Search of Almighty Voice, published by Fifth House Press. We reached him at his office in Saskatoon. Bill Wazer, welcome again to the Champlain Society podcast. It's great to be with you today, Patrice. So you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened exactly on May 30th, 1897? Well, it's a Sunday morning, and that Sunday morning is interrupted by the blast of two cannon. Almighty Voice had taken refuge in a bluff, and for your listeners on the prairies, a bluff is a depression. It's like a glacial pothole filled with trees, and in fact, some of these glacial potholes you see all across the prairies as sloughs. Uh, it's, he's hiding out there with two young companions. It's, he's found by accident. Uh, two days earlier on the Friday, the mounted police with civilian volunteers decide to uh, launch an armed assault on that bluff. You never go into a bluff uh, with trying to attack uh, an armed force in hiding, and they did. And three died as a, as a consequence of that foolhardy rush from the bluff. The Mounties brought in reinforcements, including two canyon. They waited a day and a half, and on Sunday morning, they carried out a saturation bombing of that bluff for two hours. And at the end of two hours, they were just they were still uncertain whether Almighty Voice was indeed dead. And so they waited several hours. So finally, they rushed the bluff. And what they found is that Almighty Voice was dead within a pit that he had dug for defensive purposes. And in fact, the top of his head was blown off. Somebody that morning picked up a skull fragment in the 1970s, that skull fragment was on display in the old RCMP Depot Museum in Regina and getting complaints. And so Almighty Voice, in a sense, really didn't die that day. And ever since then, there have been many Almighty Voice stories. And uh, that's why I, I've titled the book In Search of Almighty Voice. He's been created, recreated, reinvented. He's been used. He's been abused. And uh, the story itself is fascinating in itself, but how that story has been told over the past 125 years is just as fascinating. Well, let's get into it. Who exactly was Almighty Voice? Almighty Voice is a Willacree man. He's from the One Arrow First Nation, which is near Duck Lake. His Grandfather was Chief One Arrow, who was arrested at the end of the Northwest Resistance, a rebellion, and sent to Stony Mountain Penitentiary. His father was a Soto from the Nutleg Reserve to the east. 
He himself was uh, ran away or fled the territory after 1885. But Almighty Voice grows up on a reserve at the time that's little better than a prison farm. And, and I use that term deliberately. He couldn't leave the reserve without a pass. He was expected to work the fields with hand tools. This is the time of Hayter Reed's peasant farming policy. So while white settlers are using the latest machinery, prairie Indians have to use hand tools. Uh, they're being rationed. Um, in fact, it's a very stultifying dead-end existence. Almighty Voice grows up with stories of the bison hunt and how the Cree were once masters of the plains. And so he's a young man who is frustrated in many ways with his dead-end life. And in the spring of 1895, he kills a cow for food. He's starving. And it's often said that it was a government cow that he killed, but I know from the official documents that it was a, a settler's steer that had simply wandered near the reserve and he had killed it. And he's not arrested until five months later. Now, it's important to emphasize, uh, at the time of his arrest, he's a 20-year-old. He's a yeah, he's actually, when he's arrested, he's 21 years old. 21 years old. The standard story is that while being held in the Duck Lake barracks, a Mountie that night uh, jokingly suggested he would be hanged. And that's the story that everybody repeats. That's a story that bothered me, Patrice, because it didn't make sense. Yes, he was a young man, but he There's was... There's no proof it happened? Well, no, there isn't. I, I went back and looked at the Indian Affairs documents. I looked at the Mounted Police documents. And in fact, I also found uh, interviews conducted with family members. And they do not bring up the hanging incident. It's not introduced until the late 1920s. And I think the very suggestion that Almighty Voice would be fooled by uh, by the threat of hanging is something that white people would say that, well, they're very culpable. Uh, they would believe something. And it's something about their race. That was the thinking at the time. The reason that he ran is that imprisonment to him meant the end of freedom, the loss of independence, and meant, meant sickness. And the very person who was going to preside over his trial the next morning was the Indian agent. They doubled as justice of the pieces, peace. And he had threatened to kill that Indian agent in the past over some disagreement. So if you're about to face white man's justice before an Indian agent that you had white once threatened, do you think you'd stick around for that? No, he fled that night. And uh, he's a fugitive. There's all sorts of confusions and misunderstandings on all parts. And in the fog of, of, of events, he he decides to leave. The and, and the jailhouse, from what I understand, the, the jailhouse at Duck Lake is, still stands. Is that right? What I will say is that, yes, there's been a lot of uh, conflicting evidence or um, conflicting facts about what exactly happened. And it's important to emphasize here is that when I started on this project, I went and met with the one Earl chief, Chief Tricia Sutherland. Uh, she sort of, it was a discussion, but I really think it was an interview by her of me wanting to know what I was up to and what I planned to do. And it's understandable. She suggested I meet with the family. So I met with the descendants of Almighty Voice, Peter Almighty Voice, I presented him with my tobacco. I explained what I was doing. He accepted my tobacco and said it was a good thing I was doing. I then met with the elders of the community, and then I met with the, the band members. All along, it's been a joint journey. And I also went back and looked at the original documents. I've got uh, probably about a meter of police and Indian affairs documents, and I tried to piece this story together. And the first half of the book, In Search of Almighty Voice, explains what I think actually happened. 
And the second part of the book explains how that story has been distorted ever since. Well, you've preempted my question, my, my standard Champlain <laughs> Society question about your sources. So it's a mix of indigenous knowledge and what the government documents have been able to provide you with. That's right. And even a reading of the government documents, uh, and I know you've got to read against, uh, read them against the grain, but even a reading of these documents uh, suggests that the standard story that this is a man threatened with hanging, who fled, killed a Mountie who was going to bring him in, uh, deliberately hid out in the bluff. The standard story is that the bluff was an ambush. Well, if that was an ambush, why is he in, in there with limited ammunition, no food and water? It doesn't make sense. If it was truly to be an ambush, he would have prepared for it. But it's an accidental encounter. So many of the things that are said about him are simply not true. And my point in the book is that this is distorted the true or the deeper meaning of this story. Well, let's get into the deeper meaning. How did Canadians perceive the, the Plains Indians in those days? In the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, Western settlers regarded Indians as a hindrance to Western settlement. The reserves were too large because of their declining population. In fact, the reserves were seen as an impediment. Indians were not, and I call them Indians because that's the term that was used at the time. Okay, it's not First Nations, that term's not introduced in the 1970s. But they regarded Indians as not part of the New West. They did not regard Indians as not part of the emerging wheat economy. In fact, if white settlers in the late 19th, early 20th century had their way, Indians would simply ride off into oblivion and never be seen again. So Almighty Voice, if you drop him into that context, uh, he's seen as the worst of his race. This is what you can expect from these these kinds of people, and they're not to be trusted. They have no place in the New West. And so if you look at the early literature about Almighty Voice, early 20th century, you've got the mounted police representing truth, justice, honor, law and order. I can talk about all the virtues associated with them. And that um, they were standing up to Almighty Voice and preventing what they called in the early 20th century, a third Western rebellion. So let's look at the other face of the coin. How did the Plains Indians see the story of Almighty Voice. How did his story carry down through the generations? That's where the subtitle comes from, part of the subtitle, Resistance. He was resisting this dead-end, stultifying resistance. And, uh, he, you know, he simply said, enough is enough. I'm not going back to that reserve where I'm treated as little better than a serf. It's not the kind of life I want for myself or my people, my, my fellow Cree people. And so he was resisting the police taking them back there. It's still a rare event for a young Cree. Very to... rare, exceedingly rare. What's the impact of Almighty Voice? What, what, why is this so significant? Why did you spend so much time on this singular event? It's a reconciliation story, Patrice. Uh, uh, Senator Murray Sinclair said that reconciliation is not a spectator sport. I took that to heart. Reconciliation uh, is something that is a, is a shared process for Canadians and a shared journey. So I went back using my historical skills and, and looked at this story, interrogated, tried to come at it, uh, different ways, tried to use the indigenous, the things I was being told by indigenous informants about this. And we need to understand that Almighty Voice uh, was 
actually protesting First Nations mistreatment in the 1890s. And we've got to confront that as Canadians. We have to confront some of these hard truths about how we treated Indigenous people in the past, come to an understanding of that so we can move forward. And so that's why I say this is a reconciliation story. The Mounted Police, for example, up until the 1980s, should not have been displaying part of Almighty Voice's skull fragment. Rudy Weeb, uh, in a short story, visits the RCMP Depot Museum, and he writes about how upsetting it is. And I've looked at letter writers. That skull fragment is now in safe custodial uh, storage, and the Wanderall First Nation is now working with the RCMP about the return of that item so it could be properly buried on the Wanderall First Nation. We've come a long way. Uh, as my colleague Greg Marshallden uh, discussed with, with a guest uh, a while back, we still had freak shows and circuses in Toronto until the 1970s. We, we've come a long way. Let me, t let me ask you about the Indigenous voices that you sought out. Is there anything in particular that surprised you in what you heard? What really surprised me is I found an interview that was conducted with Almighty Voices parents in the 1920s. It was conducted by Chief Buffalo Longlands. Okay, that's a great story. <laughs> that's right. He claimed to be a black, the son of a Blackfoot chief. Yes. In actuality, he's from the Carolinas. He's an imposter. And he interviewed them, and he and he made short jot notes of his interview. And I found that interview transcript in the Glenbow Museum and Archives in Calgary. Amazing. I read that interview and transcript. And at the end of it, Chief Buffalo Longlance is already distorting the story. He's the one who adds the hanging threat. He's the one who says that there were a thousand at the bluff when in fact there were only a hundred. He's the one who said that Almighty Voice was tethered with a ball and chain. He wasn't tethered with a ball and chain. In fact, the Mounties were disciplined for not having a manacle. He made up all kinds of things about this incident to sell magazine articles. So there's a big distortion, yes. A big distortion. And so people have said, okay, he talked to the parents. So obviously he was told what really happened. Yes, he talked to the parents. But if you look at that interview transcript and you look at the Longland stories, they're completely different. He's completely fabricated the story. The Cree people you spoke to obviously welcomed your your involvement in this project, you're spearheading this project. They know you from your previous work. They've been very welcoming. I uh, I go to the reserve, uh, the, the community when I can. Every Tuesday afternoon, the first Tuesday of every month is an elders meeting. I've attended many elders meetings and I've talked about this and they're very frank discussions. And what I find very heartwarming is at the end, we all shake hands, we tell one another how good it is to see one another, how important it is to share information. I've spoken to the Saskatoon Tribal Council, I've spoken to the chiefs that make up that council, and I've, in fact, I've spoken at a special session, and then I've attended the Tribal Assembly for this district, and when I was going to the program, I had five minutes left according to the timetable for that day, and the Grand Chief said to me before I spoke, he said, Bill, this is an important story. Take all the time you need. That's encouraging. And at the end, a former chief got up at the end of my remarks, and you never know what's going to be said. And he said, I open my remarks with a note of regret. My note of regret is that it's a Mooney ass, a white man telling us our history. But you've done a wonderful job, and we need to tell this story. And when I came down off the stage, you gave me a big bear hug. So yes, I've been I've been welcomed 
by the indigenous community. And I see it as a partnership, a shared journey. And that's what's really, this is important. I mean, you wrote a, a wonderful book with Blair Stonechild uh, 20 years ago on the uh, indigenous perspective regarding the events of 1885. Uh, you seem particularly adept at, uh, at, at finding the partnerships necessary to tell this kind of story. You're providing us with a, with a very compelling model of how to write history, particularly the history of, of Indigenous people and, and of course, their contact with, with, with white society. I believe we don't have separate histories. Ever since newcomers arrived in the Western Ontario, uh, we've had a shared history. It's not necessarily a, a relationship that's imbalanced. There's been times of great imbalance, great misunderstanding, et cetera, et cetera. But it is still a relationship. And I see myself as part of that relationship and trying to understand what happened in the past and bring a fuller, more complete, more comprehensive understanding from different perspectives to that story. And potentially contribute a step to reconciliation. Yes. And in fact, uh, an example, I'm working with Chief Tricia Sutherland. Uh, many of your listeners might realize that last May in 2019, Poundmaker was exonerated for trees and felony. Uh, Chief Sutherland and I are, are embarking on a common effort to get Chief Wanner exonerated as well, because he was at Potash against his will. In fact, a government official said that the uh, Wanner ban could not have acted differently because of the pressure they were under at the time. Some of our listeners will remember the Canadian film Alien Thunder that came out in 1973. Jean Duceppe, the great Quebec actor, was in it, uh, and he was just a few years, this was just a few years after his uh, spectacular performance in Mon Oncle Antoine. Donald Sutherland, who was the star uh, of the movie MASH, uh, was also the star of that film. Uh, the movie was released in the United States as Dan Candy's Law, and Donald Sutherland was playing the title role. Uh, you talk about the movie a little bit uh, in your in your book. This was a pretty disastrous movie, and and for the benefit of our listeners, uh, I, I found a, a bootleg copy on YouTube, and it's a pretty bad movie. What went wrong there? Uh, I was just going to add. There's one other uh, major star there, Chief Dan George. Of course, I've, I'm sorry. Yes, was in that movie, and he, and he start. He was he was uh, the father of Almighty Voice in the story, and uh, Almighty Voice was Gordon Hennecke, who was a rising Cree actor at the time, the late Gordon Hennecke. But the problem with Alien Thunder is that it really wasn't about Almighty Voice. It was really about Donald Sutherland's character, Dan Candy. And if you start watching that movie, the focus increasingly moves away from Almighty Voice. He sort of floats around the edges. But it's the story of Dan Candy and his obsession with bringing in this so-called Cree outlaw. And the story is terribly distorted, and uh, it's, quite frankly, it's an awful movie. Donald Sutherland said it was the worst movie of his life. Dan Candy did not exist. It's a fictional character. And it's full of cliches, full of uh, Donald Sutherland in his character, shaking his fists at the Indians and talking about, quote, the goddamn red Indian, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, it's let's say it's a piece of history to look at that movie now. Yes, yes. Now, there's been some reprieve in the sense that uh, Daniel David Moses uh, wrote a play called Almighty Voice and His Wife. This came out in the uh, early 1990s, and it was uh, 
again, brought to the stage last fall in various parts of Canada. Do you see that play as, as, as closer to, to justice? Does it give Almighty Voice more justice? Yes, and what's quite interesting about that play is that I've, I've uh, read articles by Moses who talks about how he experienced great difficulty trying to understand what happened. The same difficulty I experienced. There were over 300 articles about Almighty Voice, and it, it takes a lot to sift and wade through all of this, and he says that he had the similar trouble doing that. But what's fascinating about that play is the second part where Moses deliberately tries to put the white audience ill at ease. They raise a number of indigenous stereotypes in a vaudeville-type show that uh, mock white views of indigenous people, and it is very uncomfortable to witness, to watch, but that's done deliberately to get across the other side of the story, and Moses does a tremendous job in that play. It has been very well received, and, and uh, I think uh, the play has, has a great future. I understand it's being studied in high school across Canada, or in various parts of Canada. Yes, it is. Let's talk about you a little bit, uh, Bill. Your works have won all sorts of awards. Your book, A World We Have Lost, Saskatchewan Before 1905, won the 2016 Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Uh, more recently, you've won the Royal Society of Canada's J.B. Tyrell Medal, presented for outstanding work in Canadian history. But I want to draw uh, attention to the fact that you also won the Pierre Burton Award, uh, which is the Governor General's History Award for popular media. Where do you draw the line between pop history, as it is known, uh, and scholarly history? You do both. How do you decide whether you're writing pop history or whether you're writing scholarly history. I don't draw a line. I think it's a false dichotomy. I think there's that line should be between good history and bad history. You're a university instructor. Yes. You spend a lot of time in the classroom deconstructing things, taking things apart. What we don't do as a profession is spend a lot of time learning how to put them together. We don't. And in my last few years at Saskatchewan, I left Saskatchewan in 2014, my university position there to be able to write and speak full time. Um, one of my last few years at the University of Saskatchewan, I was, I offered a writing course for graduate students. And it was quite interesting. Many graduate students thought they already knew how to write. And, uh, it's amazing what happened during the course of, of that 13 week, uh, the course. So I place a great emphasis on being able to communicate in a clear, accessible fashion. And to me, that's good history. I want to engage the reader, get the reader to ask questions of the history I'm writing about. At the same time, make it entertaining in the sense that they're interested, they're drawn in. And the question I ask myself when I write all my histories, why should I care? Why should I care about this? And that's why I try and get across in my writing. Make the reader care. Make the reader curious. Make the reader want to know more. So as I say, I've never written per se for a popular academic audience. I simply write the way that I do, and I try to make sure that it's, quote, good history. But is it more focused on storytelling, more more attention to the telling detail, to the 
to the humanized uh, story as opposed to a dry uh, report on what may have happened or what may not, what may not have happened? Is it, is it this approach to, to storytelling that distinguishes your work from others? I think we all tell stories, Patrice. I, you know, we tell stories over coffee, over a drink. You tell stories to your children, your other family member. It's a way of making connection. But I think there are literary devices you can take from fiction writing and apply to non-fiction writing. For example, uh, in my History of Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan, a new history published in 2005, my chapter on the Great Depression started off with the Fair family. And you might know that photograph. It's a picture of a farm family. The car is broken down. They're standing in front of it. All the kids are barefoot. The mother's holding a baby. That family was from uh, a Mennonite area just north of Saskatoon. And I used that human interest story to hook the reader and to then go into larger themes about the Great Depression. So there are devices we can use. I don't make things up. It's how I tell them. Do you think that your method should be more broadly applied by your former colleagues or your colleagues, historians generally? I think we can all be better writers, and I'm learning things. Uh, uh, a good friend of mine in Saskatoon is Guy Vanderhaeg, and, and Guy Vanderhaeg used to come into my writing course, and he would ask the students to explain to them what someone living in the early 20th century, how they were dressed. And they couldn't answer that. And Guy's message was to them is that even though I write creative nonfiction, I do a hell of a lot of detailed research. Those everyday things we take for granted because that's what animates our life today. And that doesn't stop you from putting footnotes in your book, does it? No, it doesn't. But they're at the end. <laughs> The, I mean, you know, we often get this, this line from publishers that, well, you know, there's too many footnotes and I personally delight in footnotes. Uh, and I, no matter, no matter if it's a, a pop quote unquote pop history that is, uh, you know, that, that borrows heavily, uh, that borrows heavily from storytelling techniques, uh, but still provides footnotes and still tells the reader, look, I'm not inventing this. This is where I found the source and my claims are justified by my reading of this one source. So if you don't believe me, go, you can go check that. And I think that's, that's always, uh, reassuring and reaffirming. And it, for me, uh, whether I'm writing, reading, uh, pop history and I do that or, or a scholarly history, I, I'm still as, as, uh, as diligent in, in, in make, wanting to make sure that, the author um, is well grounded in what she or he is saying. No, certainly, and as you say, my work is footnoted. I, I it's part of my training. <laughs> it's one of the great delights of it. Bill Wazer, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this uh, wonderful book of yours. Thank you, Patrice. Appreciate it. That was Bill Wazer, distinguished professor emeritus of history at the University of Saskatchewan. His book is In Search of Almighty Voice, published by Fifth House. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. 
This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 19, 2020, by our ingenious producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.